many of you here today know the song Rejoice in the Lord Always? Put your hand up. Great. I want you all up on the stage because we're going to sing it together. <laughs> and again I say Okay, thank you, my choir of one who stood. So I wanted to uh, start the sermon today with that song, Rejoice in the Lord Always, and again I say rejoice. This is a very joyful song that suggests that fear has no place in the Christian. Um, Our Bible reading this morning is found... um, just move this back. Hope I don't tip any water over. It's uh, Philippians chapter four. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter four? <coughs> Philippians chapter four, and I want to read uh, for verse four through to verse nine. And uh, the uh, first four will start off. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, Paul was really given some powerful words there, wasn't he? Finally, brothers. Finally. If that's not enough, he goes on. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. And now what he's telling us here now is how to achieve all that joyfulness that he was just encouraging everybody to walk in. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these That's what he says, think on these. And today we have a battle for the mind. It's a tremendous battle for the mind and it's a vicious battle for the mind. And Paul is telling us to place our mind on these things that will keep us in wonder and awe 
of the greatness of Christ. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Wow. What a great challenge that is. Could you say that? He says in another place, follow me for I follow Christ. Could you say that? Going into uh, this year of 2021, uh, we are hoping that uh, this is going to be a year of outreach and um, God is going to enable us to outreach in various ways. Last week we had all our plans dotted out and, and God tipped them all on the head, didn't he? But uh, this year we're still going to have that outreach theme, but we're saying, God, you guide us. You lead us along the way. You lead us to people who you want us to share the great news of Christ with. But of course that can be a bit fearful, can't it? Going into such a thing can, like that can be a bit fearful. There are three academic authors of a book uh, titled The Price of Panic. Write, uh, they write this. Our fear of the coronavirus emptied hotels and aeroplanes. It closed professional football. It uh, closed basketball and the Summer Olympics. It closed schools, businesses and churches it kept healthy people with a near zero risk of death huddled in their homes for months. It is fear that has done this, not the virus itself, they say. Well, there are other challenging issues that people face today which also raise a level of fear in individuals. Focus on the Family wrote recently, it is uh, tough to be a follower of Christ in today's world. Immortality. It's, I put the wrong glasses on then, didn't I? Immorality is celebrated. And when I, when I read that, I thought, yeah, isn't it ever? Isn't immorality celebrated today? And it's so, it's, it's so saddening to see that how the human body is so debased by such a celebration of immorality. And they go on, they say, the claims of scripture are disputed or ignored altogether. The very idea of absolute truth is frowned upon. In so many ways, the tide of culture seems to be against us. Now, isn't that true? You know, we, we really got to swim against the tide these days. They continue on, but it is at precisely those moments that God shows he is still in charge. There's another chorus that we're going to sing one day again. God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. Time and time again, they say in scripture, we see God using the underdogs to advance his kingdom on earth. Revival does not start in the corridors of power or the halls of government. It starts with regular men and women, people like you and me, living their lives faithfully and demonstrating Christ's love to their friends, their neighbours 
and their colleagues. Well, that's a great encouragement from uh, Focus on the Family, isn't it? It's a reminder of reality. And we can go off into a world uh, with wishful thinking and, uh, and thinking, well, you know, it's going to be really great. Well, it just might not be. We, we might have some real troubles. But God is with us, and that's what makes it great. It's the fact that God is with us. And as somebody greater than I said, if God be for us, who can be against us? I wrote in an email recently, and you might uh, be reminded when I say this, that I wondered what people would see in a hundred years' time when they look back to our time. One hundred years ago from now, the world was... Just recovering from World War One. Then there was the Spanish flu pandemic, which killed an, ex- an estimated 50 million people and infected 500 million. With our current virus challenge, we are nowhere near those figures in truth. So where does the fear come from? When Moses rebelled from being the Pharaoh's adopted son and eventually led the Israelites out of the Egyptian captivity, Pharaoh ordered that every reference to Moses be pedantically removed from any place that it was mentioned. Our society is now just as pedantically removing the knowledge of God from its midst and growingly has only itself to appeal to for answers to public problems. As a result of this, fear is being weaponised to produce control. The British government recently was caught out and forced to remove an advertisement due to its unfactual fear-mongering as the organisation said. And they they had to stop the advertisement. I'm not in any way suggesting that the virus is not serious or that we should not be careful, but rather there is a greater source of knowledge and strength that we can appeal to in this issue or any other issue that we face in life. This issue is before our minds all the time simply because every time we turn around, there's somebody. But the same thing happens through many other sources and fear can get control of us. And so this uh, greater source of knowledge and strength that we can appeal to is where? The position he holds is God. And his name is is Jehovah Rapha, meaning the God who heals. But our society struggles with a lack of knowledge, placing the mortal scientists in the place of the immortal Jehovah. All the scientists can do in such a position is stumble from one mistake to the next, as they did during the Spanish flu problem, where they ignorantly prescribed extreme toxic levels of aspirin to alleviate 
the symptoms and many died from toxic poisoning. It was certainly a developing time in pharmaceutical knowledge. The Lord offers wisdom freely. However, most do not bother to ask and therefore they do not receive. I think the scripture says something about that, doesn't it? Wisdom is a plenteous crop with a meagre harvest these days. We have good, uh, sorry, if we could personify wisdom, we would hear her voice crying out in the street, I am here, I bring great blessing. You know, that comes from the Proverbs, Proverbs 1, 20 to 22. Let me read it to you. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets. She raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? Well, that's a bit of a clip under the ear, isn't it? But so true. The Bible is always true. Someone wrote about that kind of situation there that's mentioned in, uh, about what wisdom was doing there in the streets. And he wrote, But busy pedestrians walk quickly by, perhaps only glancing in annoyance at wisdom's soapbox pulpit. A busy man late for an appointment is put off by her offer of enlightenment. He thinks to himself as he rushes by, my word, what an embarrassment. She is not a beggar, but is annoyingly worse. She offers her wisdom to any who will pause and ask. How outrageous, he says. Get out of my way, I am late. Others ignore her altogether and wonder why they live a life of anger and loneliness and fear. Some see her in front of them and take another route to avoid her altogether. Wisdom holds wealth, happiness and abundant life. But her kind offer is drowned out by the shackled angry pedestrian with his God-accusing past hurts. Urgent noises of the practicalities of life. And the worst of all the shackles self-reliance our self-reliant pedestrian says now I've grown up and no longer need the crutch of Christianity don't know if you've ever heard that kind of saying but I have but strangely that same person quickly accuses God for all that is bad in our society it is like he wants all the power and control without any of the responsibility that goes with such a position. I seem to recall reading in the book of beginnings that the self-existent and eternal Jehovah told Adam that if he ate of that tree over there, he would surely die. Adam discovered to his great fear and dismay that God means what he says. 
There are sad and troublesome consequences to disobeying the law of God. Sometimes trouble produced by one is passed on to others. Is that God's fault? Did he not warn Adam? Does he not warn us today? The Bible tells us that this same self-existent God has a plan for his people. You've heard and read many times, no doubt, Jeremiah chapter 29 and 11 to 13. And it says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope Continue to seek those things apart from faith in God and they will always be just out of reach. God has these plans for you. And Jeremiah continues with the answer. And he says, then, then, and that's a time statement. Then, when then, when then, when you realise your need of God. That's the time statement. When you realise your need of God, he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When, another time statement, when you seek me with all your heart. You see, God is not interested in half-heartedness. Jesus Christ did not half die on the cross. He did not halfway walk to the cross. He did not halfway come from heaven to earth. He did not halfway give up all the glory that he had in heaven to come to this earth. It was all or nothing. And God has set the standard. You will seek me and you will find me, God says, when you seek me with all your heart. Friends, don't let the distractions of the world stop you from seeking God with all your heart. Now I'm speaking to those also today who are seeking with all your heart the all that you know of. But God knows more than you do. And God knows your heart better than you. And God knows how much of your heart is still under your control that you're not realising. And so God will reveal it to you like he revealed to Saul of Tarsus on the road to, uh, road to um, uh, Damascus. This God who calls us into his protection and eternal care is more than we can imagine. And so he presents himself to us with different but related descriptive names. ChristianAnswers.net, that's a handy little uh, website if you want to uh, write that down and go to it sometimes if you've got a question. It records 950 names in which God comes to us, each revealing a part of his eternal character. 
He reveals himself to us like no other pretender to the eternal throne does or even can. He wants us to know him so we can fulfill the purpose for which he made us. What is the purpose of man? Well, there's a theological term for this, and it is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Is there an amen for that? Amen. Amen. Let's do that again. Amen. Amen. Can you think of some enjoyment that you could not possibly tire of? Set aside that theological term. In this world, can you think of some enjoyment that you could not possibly tire of? When I wrote that question down, I challenged my own mind. I thought, hmm, missionary to an uninhabited island. (laughs) I think I might get sunburnt. No, I think I'd enjoy it for a while, but I probably would get tired of it. Don't you think? There's really nothing in this world that is generally enjoyable that we couldn't that we don't tire of because we're always looking for something else we're going from one thing to the other like those square blocks that you buy from uh, Bunnings and you put down in your garden and you step from one to the other you're going from one enjoyment to another so can you think of an enjoyment that you could not possibly tire of well if we allow God to be included in our consideration him I could never tire of enjoying him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ponder that for a moment, will you? Enjoy him forever. Now, some of us here have married and we've got, you know, we're couples and we know each other a fair bit. But you know, when we know God, we shall be forever getting to know him. We shall be forever learning about God and understanding him. He's infinite. Our finite minds have great difficulty in understanding and getting some kind of handle on that little piece of knowledge that God is so infinite that our enjoyment with him will never cease. We will never sit down and say, well, I'm bored. Ever heard kids say that? I'm bored. We will never be bored in heaven. Getting to know the wonder of God will be an enjoyment itself. Let me just go through just a few of those 950 names. I won't do them all. What's the time? Yep, I won't do them all. The very first place in the Bible where God is mentioned is the first verse. And in fact, it's not just God in that singular sense that we sometimes think of God. It is... The Trinity presented in the very first verse in the Bible. 
and the word is Elohim. And it means the all-powerful creator. And Elohim is, is plural. It's not singular. It's plural. Later on in the text, we read, let us make man in our image. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is present right there. And this Elohim is the all-powerful creator. So he is the one who is in charge. He is the one who had the idea in the first place. Now, that is a time statement, isn't it, in the first place? But he's in eternity. How can we understand that? Let's wait till we get to see him. Second one is Jehovah, the self-revealing one. Now, I love this word because it tells me that God wants to reveal himself to me. He is not staying aloof out there. Some of the so-called gods in other religions, their gods are so distant and so harsh that, that nobody wants to get to know them. And if they did want to get to know them, they couldn't get to know them. But Jehovah, he is the self-revealing one, the one who comes in the midst of whatever you're experiencing, whatever fear, whatever challenge, whatever disappointment, whatever struggle you are, you are battling with, Jehovah is revealing himself to you. And then there is this one here which... Um, not too many people in the world like anymore, and that is the word Adonai. Adonai. Why don't they like that? Because that word reveals God as being the owner of all. Everything is his. The environment is his. The Great Barrier Reef is his. The oil in the ground is his. The gold in the, in the hills and wherever it is, it's all his. The sun that comes down and uh, it makes electricity in our solar panels, it's all his. All the silver and ground, it's all his. The cattle's on a thousand hills, it's all his. The hills that the cattle's are on are his. You are his. The person who despitefully hates him and uses him belongs to God. God owns him because God made him. He's serving another God, but God owns him. God is sovereign over all. So Adonai, the owner of all, he has a right then to order however he wishes. And he can write in a stone saying, you shall have no other gods but me and be perfectly right in doing that. The next one is, I, I remember learning this one in um, uh, what's that Baptist church we went to? Banyo, Banyo Baptist Church. Uh, just after college days, because uh, this song just came out on the, uh, yeah, with all the chorus books, uh, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Remember that song? Well, it means the Lord who provides. The Lord who provides. Now, 
we have very selfishly applied that to provisions of the day. There are other texts of scripture which we can appeal to to prove that idea that the Lord provides for us the everyday, like the, in Matthew where it talks about the, the birds of the air. So why doesn't he look after you? You know, it's a bit of a sarcastic kind of a clip under the ear there we're getting from Matthew. But here, this word the Lord provides is meaning the provision of sacrifice. Comes from the Old Testament and it reminds us that we are lost without his sacrifice. Oh dear, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Then there's El Shaddai, the almighty sufficient one. Every satisfaction is in him. All the trinkets of the world pretend to try and satisfy us, but he is the almighty sufficient one. And he is the one who will provide all satisfaction in life. El Elyon, the most high ruler, he is the one who is in charge. And we might think that these people who issue laws and regulations, all that sort of thing, they're in charge. Well, they're in charge to a degree. But God is in the final charge. Now, my friends, do you ever feel overwhelmed by life at times? Are there things that overwhelm you? Things that you wish you could get rid of in some way, but it just overwhelms you? Well, Jehovah comes as Jehovah Nissi, the Lord's banner of victory. The Lord's banner of victory. One more before we begin to finish off. We spoke about this one a few weeks ago. Jehovah Shalom. The Lord our peace. Do you feel the need for a deeper peace? I won't explain further the shalom peace there, but uh, it's not the peace where a war has ended and there's a victor and there's a, a vanquished and there's this, this other one who's come and, and you know they're, they're subservient now. It's nothing like that. It's a complete unity where there is no sense of, of um, you're better than me. It's a shalom peace. Do you feel the need for a deeper peace? Well, God has that for you today. But all that does not remove us from a world that is in uh, a futile rebellion with uh, this all-powerful Elohim. We still suffer the storms of life. Sadnesses come our way, don't they? Perplexing problems present themselves to us. Uh, pain is part of this life. Life at least to some degree. But this very same all-powerful God is a God of intimate comfort who never leaves our side. And that's one of the other names, comforter. He comes to us as a comforter. Society rejects the omniscient God who knows and heals and as a result it lives in a state of ignorance inspired fear and deception that there is no help and there is no hope. 
But how many times does the Bible command us to not fear? We need to remember that God did not give us a spirit of fear. Christians should never be motivated by fear. Christians are instructed to be bold and courageous. In fact, dare I tell you this? The word coward is in Revelation. Revelation 21 and verse 8. Sometimes it's translated another English word. In fact, cowards are listed amongst those who are excluded from the New Jerusalem. Now that should wake us up a bit. Paul wrote to the Philippian church about his sure and reliable foundation of hope and contentment. In Philippians 4 verse 11 to 13 he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and very circumstance, every, sorry, every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled with and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, are you one of those people, I hope not, I doubt that there's anyone here that does this, that takes the scripture and uh, off to an extreme. I can do all things. Oh, I'd love to fly like an eagle. You think that? Okay, next time you're up in a plane, jump out and flap like mad. And you'll discover that you can't do it. No matter how much you appeal to Christ to strengthen you, strengthen those arms, Lord, they're getting weak. What does this mean? That there is hyperbolic language. You know what hyperbolic language is? It's a hyperbole. It's an extreme illustration that underlines a more subtle truth. Like in uh, Corinthians where it talks about uh, uh, the noisy gong business, you know, if I can speak in tongues of men and angels, that's the hyperbole, that's the extremeness. And the interesting thing about hyperboles is that it is understood, supposedly, by everybody that that's not the point. That that is not what we are getting at. It's this other thing. And in that Corinthian reference, of course, it's talking about love. But here, it's talking about, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What all things? What are the boundaries for that all things? Well, Paul tells us. He says, in whatever circumstance I am in, whatever circumstance will come your way, God will strengthen you to cope. That's what it's talking about. Not talking about you being able to zap a miracle here or there or, or, you know, be a superman and jump over a tall building or whatever. Not talking about those kind of extreme things. He sets the boundaries in the first part of the reading. Whatever circumstance I am in, I have learned to be content because Christ is the one who is strengthening me. Finally, uh, focus on the family comment. 
It is impossible to be courageous if there is no risk. Only when the risks are real can we really be courageous. Therefore, the risk of catching or passing on some virus is an opportunity to demonstrate courage. That is not to say we should not take responsible precautions or put other people's welfare before our own, but faithful Christian ministry will never be hindered by fear in any decision of what to do or not to do. Fear should not be the deciding factor. We need to ask what is the courageous, faith-filled, loving thing to do. So finally we might ask what will future historians say of us? As we look back at Christian responses to plagues in the past, we shall be inspired by their courage and their conviction. Many of them died for the sake of helping others. The risks to us in our current situation in comparison pale into insignificance of what people have um, experienced before us. So what are the people in a hundred years' time going to look back and say of us today? It is a time to send fear back to its devilish source, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. For this reason, Paul says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gives us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And to conclude with this verse, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. This is talking about back in the time around the cross. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Is the Father with you? I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. O oh God of all compassion, save us from unfounded fear, and thank you that you are bigger than any giant in our lives. To the glory of our Saviour Jesus. Amen. Amen.